Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. With us today is Margaret Rinkle, author of the brand new book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. It comes out tomorrow, October 24th. Margaret is a New York Times opinion columnist, a best-selling author, and a keen observer of the natural world. She comes to us from just outside Nashville, Tennessee, and her book was so good. At one point, I slammed it down on the bed, and my husband said, that bad, huh? And I said, Oh no. Oh no. This book is so good. I I just need a minute. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Courtney. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for for being here. This book was just such a profound chronicle of not only your own backyard, but the world at large, the climate change that we're facing, these questions of hope and grief and despair. Where did this book come from? It kind of came from two places, really. It came from readers first. When I was on book tour with uh, Late Migrations, my first book, which is also a collection of essays that tell a story, that story is the, is, is kind of, um, it's, I've, I've forgotten how to talk about this book, but it's kind of the story of my grief after my mother died and just reckoning with the idea of how you can have an imperfect family and still have a very happy childhood. But interspersed with those essays were essays about the natural world of my backyard. And by the time I got toward the end of book tour, because I kept going out and coming back in so I could write a column for the times and then go back out for another two or three or four days and then come back in. Um, towards the end of the book tour, people had already read the book and they started saying to me, I've been reading this. I had to slow down. I had to just keep it by my bedside and read it almost like a devotional one, one little essay, or maybe two, if they were really short each night, I didn't want to hurry through it. It helped me think through some things about my own family. And it dawned on me that a book written with that express purpose in mind might be a way to address, to think about and think through my complicated feelings about the joy I take in the burgeoning life of my yard and the grief I feel about how imperiled that joy really is in this age of biodiversity loss and climate change. And so I started uh, conceiving of this book then, and then I started realizing that there's a long history, literary history of this kind of book that would not be called in any sense a devotional. But I think about, of course, the grandfather of all of this in some ways, Henry David Thoreau and Walden, um, or Sue Hubble's A Country Year, or Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and all those, and, and so many more, Verlin Klinkenborg's The Rural Life. It just, there's so many of these texts, and um, they don't always 
they aren't always set up the way mine is week by week by week. Uh, they are often concern an incredibly different habitat and environment. Um, but it's the same that that literary tradition is about the the fact that the nearby natural world is worthy of careful scrutiny and study in the same way that a grand adventure walking the Pacific Crest Trail as Cheryl Strayed did in Wild or the Appalachian Trail as Bill Bryson did in A Walk in the Woods that um, I had some good literary forebears mm. for, for contemplating nearby nature. Mm. It really... Those were many of the authors that came to mind. Also, Ross Gay, who I think you you quote in the book, who has these little essayettes about delight. And there's so much delight in your book that despite this grief, despite this heaviness, there is still that thread of joy in both the tiny things and in the big things. One of the lines that really stuck out to me, is it okay if I share a line from the book? Sure. Share all of them you like. <laughs> one of the lines that really stuck out to me, and it actually came from one of your columns as well, is the world is burning and there is no time to put down the water buckets. For just an hour, put down the water buckets anyway. Take your cue from the bluebirds who have no faith in the future, but who build the future nevertheless. And so often in your book, you give us this permission, like drink deeply, enjoy anyway. It doesn't mean things aren't very dire. To be in touch with nature is to be in touch with grief. The world is burning. How do you stay connected to this hope? And how dare you give us permission to enjoy things? <laughs> well, I don't think we would survive very long without it. I don't think we were as, I just don't think that, um, I don't think scolding changes anybody. And I don't think despair inspires action. So I think that for me, part of it is just maintaining hope is just a matter of looking for reasons to have hope. Mm. Because when I look for them, they are there. It's so easy, especially with the headlines um, everywhere, to assume that the only news is bad news. And that's because, well, we all know this, it's it's, if it bleeds, it leads. That's been a, a truism of journalism for a long time. But those more, ha those happier, uh, those little bits of evidence that things are not all entirely lost, those things don't get the clicks that the sad or tragic news gets. And so... I think that we need to give ourselves permission to take hope where we can find it. Um, but I also think that we are not despairing creatures. Hmm. I think that there's a reason why when something terrible happens, we regard it as a departure from the norm. We think that unhappy families are, for example, the aberrations and we think that everyone else's family is happy or we think that everyone else's family has plenty of money or so we we believe that sickness is a divergence from the natural state of good health and we believe that happiness is is only what we 
we were meant for and deserve. And that is true. So it is just in our nature, as much as we still want to click the, if it bleeds, it leads headlines. We still believe that we deserve joy. Hmm. It it really did feel like it it gave me greater permission to find those those flickers of joy, but also also those big flashes of joy, right? Like sometimes it's tremendous and it's huge. And and in this book, your backyard becomes this magical place. I mean, every seed, every flower, even the even the bloodthirsty things that happen because there's nature. And I watched an interview with you, uh, I think a PBS interview in preparation for this podcast, and it showed your backyard. And I remember thinking, oh, it's just a backyard. But you found the magic. So how do we do that? How do we begin to train ourselves how to see in our own backyard or our window box planter or the park outside the school? How do we learn that skill? I think that we almost had to, at some point, unlearn it. Because I think that children have it. You know, I used to I used to get notes from the second grade teacher for my oldest son who and the second grade teacher was a one of those worksheet teachers where you sat down and you do all the worksheets and then you're allowed to go outside and play at at, at recess and if you don't get the worksheets done you can't go to re- recess and my son was never getting the worksheets done. <laughs> and she and the teacher would send these notes saying that Sam was being too daydreamy in class. Sam was spending all his time looking out the window. And it was like, this is a child who can spend half an hour studying an anthill. Mm -hmm. He is not incapable of focused concentration. Is it possible that you're boring him? I mean, I, I didn't ever actually say that, I don't think. But we are. I think that we are all born capable of spending 30 minutes contemplating an anthill or staring out the window and watching birds bring nesting materials to a hole in a tree we or a crack in a in a brick building or around the metal frame of a of a warehouse window we are we can do that but somehow we've lost the knack i do i'm old enough that i can't entirely blame the iphone but I do very largely blame the iPhone, much as I love mine, um, because I love that camera right in my pocket. And I love when I can't figure something out. And, you know, like I, I have several apps on my phone that can help me, if not accurately identify an insect um, or a flower, at least get me in the ballpark so that when I get back home, I can look in my field guides um, but but it's just, can you imagine what it's like for small children who sit in the grocery cart with their parents' phone or iPad and never look at the swirl of humanity in the grocery store? How will they ever have that ability to hold still and just watch and hear I worry a little bit about them. I understand. God, I remember those days in the grocery store at 5 p.m. But um, but but we are unteaching our children how to do what they can teach us how to do if we're only patient. 
I feel that as a mom, our, our kids are 11, seven and, and five. And there is this constant, like if they're on a screen, they're quiet and I can think my thoughts and I can make my grocery list, but realizing that every time that happens, you know, that I, I really try as a parent to make that last resort rather than first resort, you know, but I think I drove my kids to school this morning and I think I answered 67 questions between the front door and the school and the school is not that far away. Um, but they have so many things to teach me if I'm paying attention in return, right? Throw throw a bunch of bananas in their hands at the grocery store and talk about those for a little bit rather than the screen. But yeah, we are. We are unteaching ourselves and our kids. We're, I know people are tired. I'm tired too. Everyone is tired. Everyone is weary. Everyone is worried. And those little high-pitched voices, I think they are designed by God to get into our bone marrow and explode like little dirty bombs. It is hard. It is really, really hard. Um, and so I don't fault anybody who says, look, I'm just trying to get the lunch boxes packed. I'm just trying to get everybody buckled into the car seat. Um, but but it the, the, the thing that I try to remember when I get really busy is that this isn't something I should do. Mm. This isn't something that I must do. This is something that gives me joy, that brings me happiness and peace. So sure, before the iPhone, we had a rule that you could watch cartoons on television. We had a no screen policy during the school week, but you could watch cartoons on television until dad and I woke up. And as long as you, they were in there being quiet, they were being very quiet on Saturday morning. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a fair trade. I thought to have Saturday morning cartoons because it meant we could sleep in. And sometimes you have to make those trades, but, but sometimes it might be worth trading the other way that staring out the window, giving yourself permission to do that to, is, is the way that you reinforce and fill up those vessels that you need to be able to deal with the lunch boxes and the car seats and the deadlines at work and all of that, the endless flight delays, mm. those things. I appreciate that insight so much that often that is how we get ourselves filled back up. And I notice with our kids, you know, when they've had a bunch of screen time, they're not quite themselves, you know, and, and it's such a mirror for me of maybe I'm not quite myself when I've been over-reliant on all the pings and flashes and entertainment rather than just going outside for 10 minutes because there's magic there, right, in my own backyard right in my own. You're inspiring my husband and I to start our own pollinator garden. So here in Southern California, there's no excuse if you have any little patch of ground to not do a pollinator garden. Well, and you have the, the single most endangered po um, population of monarch butterflies in California and a plot of milkweed west of the Rockies is a lifeline mm. to those Western monarch butterflies which have lost some 98, 99% of their numbers in recent mm. years. We have not yet planted milkweed, but I'm, I'm going to tell my husband we have an assignment from, from, <laughs> from I, Margaret herself. Find out which varieties are native to your general ecosystem. Deal. 
deal. We've got space. I'll report back. Okay. Uh, one of the other themes in, in your book is the theme of change. So from climate change to bird migration to this, this change and loss of your husband kind of having an empty nest and then welcoming children back in because there was a pandemic and then having an empty nest again. How does your connection to nature influence the ways you're able to adapt to or understand personal change? I believe that that is what I was trying to learn when I was writing Late Migrations. I was trying to reassure myself that when my mother died at 80, which is a great age, she had no, she was not ill. She had a sudden cerebral hemorrhage and was gone and she didn't suffer. She wasn't in pain. She wasn't in fear. Um, but I wasn't prepared my grandmother, her mother, had lived to be 97 despite being shot in the stomach five times. Her great, her, her grandmother, my great-grandmother, lived until I was a junior in college, even though most of her life there had been no antibiotics or vaccines in her world. So I wasn't prepared to lose my mother, but paying attention to the natural world helped me center her death as part of a natural cycle that every living thing undergoes. And it was a great help to me, not that I missed her any less or mourned her any less, but that I, I understood more viscerally that this was in some ways how things must work. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that is, um, that is what I was learning. Um, the, the thing that is hard now for me is how visible the other kinds of changes are hmm. in a way that even my mother died in 2012. So even a little over a decade ago weren't as transparent as they are now. For example, in my neighborhood, there was no, there were no mosquito services in my neighborhood. So even though we don't spray for mosquitoes, all our neighbors do, or many of our neighbors do. So the mosquito trucks come and they fog every tree and they're killing mosquitoes, some of them at least. Um, but they are also killing the butterflies and the bees and all the other tiny pollinators and other insects that, um, that are, are vulnerable to that poison, and that's all of them. So just that one difference makes a difference in my little half-acre yard. And there's so many others, the extreme weather, the droughts that aren't just a period without rain, but a period of intense heat without rain that goes on and on and on and on. Those things weren't as transparent to me even just a decade ago. Uh, but they are they are the kinds of changes that are impossible not to notice now. And there's a part of me that's a little bit glad that people who haven't been focusing their attention on those changes have no choice now but to reckon with it. But mostly I just miss the butterflies. Mm. 
Your writing does that so well, Go, goes from this universal, you know, climate change and, and increase in temperatures and storms to mostly I just miss the butterflies because that's where most of us live. You know, we want to change the world, but also we just miss the butterflies. But often I think that's where that energy for doing good begins is with that personal, last year there were a hundred in my yard and now there are eight. Right. What can I do? And it is a and it is an empowering thing to when you plant those milkweed those milkweed plants. You might want to get plants and not seedlings. It's a little harder to make milkweed seeds germinate than you might think. But I'm gonna bet they find it almost instantly, mm. um, depending on whether there are you know any milkweed stands anywhere nearby, and they've become accustomed to looking there. When you do say, I'm going to plant a pollinator garden, or I'm not going to spray for mosquitoes, I'm going to do the mosquito bucket of doom and take care of my mosquitoes that way. Um, or you say, I'm not going to weed the wildflowers out of my flower beds. I'm going to welcome them. Any of those little changes and they almost, I'm going to leave a brush pile in, in against the fence. I'm going to leave a scruffy part on the margin of the yard so that the creatures have a place to hide from predators. Every one of those little tiny things will result in something that delights you. Hmm. And it happens almost instantly. And so while you aren't going to change the whole world, changing that little postage stamp of native soil will... I think reinforce the, the, the belief that it can be changed hmm. that will give you, you know, the tools you need to keep going. Hmm. I think it's Wendell Berry that writes about how all faith is local. Like you can't have grandiose, you can only have right here. Um, and I, and I see that in your work and your work kind of has this, this, this faith-haunted quality to it. You quote scripture and you quote from the Gospels. You mentioned you grew up going to Catholic school. Um, how does faith interplay with nature in your life and in your heart? How do those things connect for you? It, it, I don't know how to separate them, you know, and I don't know that anyone who is faith-haunted can because especially in the Christian tradition and, and, and we, we have our, our understanding of how human life begins, begins in a garden. Hmm. And it's, so we, we, we don't, we can't continue to have this idea that we were given dominion over it because dominion is what got us into this mess to begin with the sense that we're just going to, climb that mountain and plant that flag and exploit and extract everything we possibly can. The, the, the faith tradition of Christianity is part of the reason we're in trouble. But, um, but there is also a very strong sense of stewardship in the Christian tradition, and that's where I think we can find common ground. If this is our gift from some greater being, whatever we want to imagine it, whether it's Mother Nature or it's God, it's our responsibility to care for it and protect it and nurture it. And that's 
it's really just that simple for me. Mm. The difference between dominion and stewardship is a whole universe. It is. But they're both right there. And we have this bad habit um, of Christians. uh, We have this bad habit of choosing the parts we like that are convenient. Okay, so I work for an oil company. This is just... This is just what it says um, in the Bible. Extract, extract, extract. But um, but that's not all it says. But it's so much harder when we have to listen to the whole thing. There are a lot of parts that make me uncomfortable. <laughs> so many parts. One of the things I love most about your writing, and it's true of your column, it's true about all of your books, that that you have this love of imagery. You paint these pictures that I am there. I can see it. One of the images that really stuck with me from this book, and I'm not sure why, because it's just, you know, it's it's a third of a page, but when you're young and you're in the pantry and you notice a box of crackers has a corner chewed off and that little mouse that you encounter and the posture the mouse has when it sees you and your response even then is not squeamishness. It's not fear. It's not, oh, creepy mouse in the pantry. It's it's this kind of holy curiosity that you seem to have had as a very young child. Tell, tell us about that. How did that develop in you, and how can we learn to develop that in ourselves? And tell me about the mouse. Uh, well, I don't know what happened to the mouse. The mouse made a getaway, and I was startled by its presence. The, 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 the cracker box was sealed. <laughs> so when I opened it, I heard something rustling in there, and I opened it. That, that little wax paper enclosure was completely sealed and I opened it and it had come in through an entry it had made for itself. And I dropped the the flashlight and that's when the mouse made the getaway. But again, I, I don't know if it's natural to me or natural to the time of life and the place where I grew up, or if it's just natural hmm. that that kind of curiosity it was just inborn. I, I, I tend to believe having raised three, three sons that it is inborn in everybody. But, but for me, it was very, part of it was a result of the fact that there was nothing built into culture the culture I grew up in that was designed to entertain children. Hmm. You know, there was just nothing. So partly it was that I grew up in a house without air conditioning. Um, So my, well, at least my early years, um, first probably I'm going to say eight years, there was no air conditioning that, so you had the windows open, you had the door open, you you could hear birdsong at all times. You could you woke up when the sun came up because you couldn't sleep through that birdsong. You heard, you you smelled the storm coming up. You felt that, um, you felt the dust, you know, blowing through the screen when there was a high wind. And I think that it it was just the background of every breath I took. And then I also think it was that, you know, my mother's, we weren't so vigilant as parents back in those days. And my mother's like idea of safety was, well, if Billy, my brother, who's a year younger than I am, if we stayed together, we were safe. So it was just kind of go play, come back when you're hungry. And where we wanted to play was the creek, the field. Um, and and all we did was just look around. Mm. 
why crows? Why the comfort of crows? Why not the comfort of doves or the comfort of bluebirds or the comfort of bunnies? Why, why, what is it about crows that drew you in with this book? You tell us some in the book, but not everyone is read it yet. It's hard to explain when people ask my husband, what's Margaret's favorite bird? He says, you aren't going to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think that crows are my favorite bird necessarily. Mm. Um, Probably blue jays are my favorite bird just Mm. because they, that was the first, they're extravagant looking and they are um, loud and they're incredibly smart, but they, um, and it's the first, one of the first words I ever my parents would report. It's the first, one of the first words I ever said hmm. was blue jay, but, <laughs> but crows are so much like us. There's so much in crow communities that echo our communities or vice versa. Crows stay together in families through the generations. Hmm. Crows cooperate to drive off predators. They they don't have claws, really, not like a, a hawk has claws. They don't have beaks that are really designed for tearing. But they um but they they are also predators as we are. They are very nurturing, caring parents. They mourn their dead. They have been observed conducting what looks very much like a a funeral um, where they gather around a fallen comrade and kind of seem to be saying goodbye. And they also um, quarrel among themselves. (laughs) And I just, something about that similarity, both the uncomfortable aspects of it and the remarkable, like there's a video online of a crow, I believe in Russia. I think it's a piece of cardboard. It's some sort of human-made object that it drags to the top of a snowy rooftop and then hops on board and sleds down to the bottom of the roof. And then it grabs the the, the device, uh, the, the cardboard, whatever it is. It's hard to see from the video, which was just made by somebody through, through a window, drags it back up to the peak of the roof and does it again and again. It's sledding. It's having fun. It's playing. And all those similarities just delight me. And I think that so much of what I hope readers will take from the comfort of crows is this feeling of very close kinship to the natural world. We've we've set up our lives not to feel that kinship much anymore. So many people just check their mailbox from their car window and drive straight into the garage and close the door and their their houses are sealed off from the sound of birdsong and, and um, the heat of summer and the cold of winter. And I, and I, and I understand that, but I think it's very, very much part of the reason why the world is in so much trouble and human communities are so divided. We don't have the stand in the street and talk to one another kind of kinship among our own kind, much less with the, with our wild neighbors. So that's part of, I think the reason why too, Hmm. it's the most obvious kind of avian 
kin we have. There, there's a, a great book, Linda, Linda Haupt something is the author um, called Crow Planet and just about how they're not the most common birds, but they're the most commonly seen birds. Like right. they're in the city, they're in the country, they're everywhere. And I, I love that your book connects this idea that they can bring us comfort because I see them every day. And it's this, it's this kind of demi- divine reminder that we are, we are seen and that we are in it together. And we had a crow during the pandemic that had one white feather in his tail so we could tell him apart from the others. And he was in our yard and we started talking to him and my kids were like, the pandemic has been too long for you, mom. And I'm like, Joe, <laughs> Joe, the crow, he's back. We're chatting. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who I don't feed crows because they they do help themselves to other birds' babies, uh, and I would and, and also what crows eat it's I just don't necessarily want to handle um, you know carrion, but they um, they the there are people who do feed crows and who who therefore get a close up look, and they can tell them all apart. Yeah. That is a level of understanding that I have yet to achieve. <laughs> crows appreciate it. Crows have been observed m- m- more than once when people feed them, responding by bringing gifts, uh, like uh, in thanks, kind of a reciprocity, developing a really truly re- reciprocal relationship. <laughs> Yeah. I was speaking with an owl expert who she said, we train raptors. We don't train corvids like crows because they end up training you. Like they're so smart. You just, you can't do it. (laughs) I sat in this room and looked out the window. There's a bluebird box right outside this window. And and it, the, the, the door, uh, the one, one wall is designed to fall out from the top. Sometimes the walls lift from the bottom, but this one came out, comes up, and it, that wall is held in place by what looks like a push pin, a silver push pin with a really long stem that goes down into the wall that moves. And so when you need to check the box, you lift that push pin out. And I knew that the bluebirds were very close, the babies very close to fledging, and I was watching at the window with my camera determined to capture the moment when the first baby left the box. And I, and, and I looked down to do something with the camera and I looked up and the wall was open and I was like, Oh my gosh, what happened? And I realized that a crow had been watching this whole and had flown off with the little doohickey that held the wall in place. So, ah! and I went running out there with the duct tape because I didn't want the babies just falling out I wanted to make sure that they were they and they were just sitting in there like oh god so I, I duct taped the wall closed and sure enough late a couple hours later they got up their nerve and left one by one. Oh, like this is more sunlight than we have ever seen like, before this is not what we've been knowing yeah the crow found a shiny thing as they do <laughs> well I was going to ask about your favorite bird but it sounds like We've covered the blue jay, the little winged cathedral. Yes. I love it. I love those birds. And they're really, they have some of the, many of the same qualities that crows have. They also belong to the corvid family and they are very, very smart and very mischievous. We, We had one a couple of years ago who the baby red tailed hawks, have this very piteous sounding cry when they want, they want to be content. They want more food and their parents are not feeding them anymore. And this babe, this blue Jay had picked up this 
you know, and could mimic that sound. And I don't, I, you know, sometimes blue jays will mimic the sound of pre- predatory birds to um, scare away other birds from a bird feeder. But this blue jay just seemed to be entertaining itself. It, it, uh, you know, it didn't have any purpose. It was just making this sound from. There were no cardboard sleds available. No. Like the crow. It had to, had to make its own fun. Yeah. <laughs> Final question before we move on to where people can find your beautiful, beautiful book, because everyone needs to read it. You talk a lot about waiting, and this book came a little bit out of the pandemic. You say, you know, it's it's meant to cover a year, but you wrote it over a couple of years and kind of intertwined some of these stories, that waiting is both passive and active. And the the end of that particular section, you write, the night sky is full of stars best seen from a dark place, and that it's important that you remember this too. Um what are you waiting for in your life right now? And how have you learned to wait well? Okay, Courtney, I'm going to turn 62 the week this podcast runs. And I have stopped thinking of anything I do as waiting. Hmm. Because there's a, there's a thing that happens in your youth where you are hitting milestones. And then when you have children, you're watching them hit milestones and and longing for some of them. Oh, God, if only he'll sleep through the night. If only we could get down to one longer nap instead of three of these tiny little things that's not short enough, that long enough to take a shower through. Those kinds of things are all in my past. And, you know, I have a friend who, who has a devastating case of long COVID this time last year was, you know, training for triathlons. Mm. And so we just, I think that this has always been true, but maybe I didn't realize it until I reached this age. But we aren't promised any day beyond this day we woke up in. And so I'm not sure that thinking of waiting is all that helpful anymore. You know, it's just now being grateful and trying to do good in some way and hoping for the best. Hmm. I'm going to tuck that right here into my fast moving, overachieving young children in the house phase of life heart. (laughs) That's a lesson I want to learn earlier rather than later. I, I had learned it earlier too. I think it came to me only because of, you know, seeing how often, you know, well, we all live with loss, but as the losses pile on top of loss, it becomes a little easier to see that truth. Yeah. The unique gift that comes with, with grief. And you write about that too. You write about this connection between gratitude and grief, but We're not going to spoil all of that because we want everyone to go out and get their hands on your book. This is my favorite nonfiction book of the year. It is just fabulous and beautiful. I sped through it. And then the last third, I was like, no, Courtney, savor. I made myself slow down and I'm going to go back and read it again. Where can people find you? Where can they find this book? Well, the book should be available 
in any place that you like to get your books. I always encourage people to buy from their local independent bookstore, which requires, which, which won't, they won't survive without our support. And if you don't have an independent bookstore near you, bookshop.org is a good online source for discounted books. But I, there's also, um, there are also digital versions of the book that will be available and an audio version. I've never done the audio book for my own books before, but that was an experience. It's, um, the, the, even if you love audiobooks, you might want to get the heart, the, the physical book for this one because there are 52 original works of art in it that my brother Billy, my, um, my, the other half of the buddy system that of our childhood that he made. He's a collage artist and he made one for every essay mm. in the book. And they aren't in the audiobook. And, and they, they are beautiful. The version, but I think they are maybe in the iPad version. Mm. Yeah, the artwork really was was profoundly beautiful. What was that collaboration like? How did that come about? He's well, we've been collaborating on this or that for our entire lives. He's he was born an artist, and um, so I would write a little poem or a story, say for our grandparents' wedding anniversary, and he would he would make some pictures that would go with it. We did that all the way through high school, mm. college, grad school, and we did, and he did. Um, I think about 20, 19 or 20 um, artworks for Late Migrations, my first book. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted even more of that for this book. And I just told him, let's don't call them illustrations. Let's don't think about them as illustrations. Let's think of the words as your starting point. And then mm-hmm. you respond to that week in the world or the words that I've written about that week in the world, either one, hmm. and make a companion piece of art. So we think about the art and the words as being in conversation with one another and not one as subservient to the other. Mm. Yeah, it, it added so much. And like you said, it's not a devotional book, but it also kind of is a devotional book. And that would be a wonderful way to read it is one piece per year, because it does kind of each... Each little mini chapter opens your eyes to a different facet of the natural world or a different conundrum or a different phase of life. And and it really has this meditative quality that could be best read slow. So I've yeah. just got to read it multiple read times. It. it starts on December 21st, the first day of winter. So it's possible mm-hmm. to read it one week at a time and think of it as kind of an illuminated manuscript. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So you can find it anywhere books are sold with encouragement to check out those independent bookstores. If you buy the audiobook version, Margaret will read it to you herself, which is amazing. Um, and Margaret writes a regular... I don't know how amazing it is. We'll see. <laughs> there is something about an author's unique voice, though. You know, a little accent and inflection and how do you pronounce this this town that we may not be familiar with because we're not from Middle Tennessee and those things matter. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, and your column in the New York Times, how can we find you there? Every Monday. It's mostly online, although sometimes it's in the print edition as well. Not usually on Monday, usually later in the week. But it's uh, it's it's usually live by 6 o'clock Monday morning. Mm. Unless I'm taking the week off, which I will be uh, some during the time when I'll be on book tour. 
Because you got to still have time to savor and delight. Can't can't overfill the cup. Mostly, I got to have time to stand in airports and wonder <laughs> if is ever going to leave. There is no nature in airports. That's it's the worst. I had one of my most transforming experience with birds is standing at a window in LaGuardia and watching the nesting activities of all these water birds. Hmm. Now, LaGuardia is just right on the the coast or something. So it's just another reminder. It's there if it's we're looking. There. It's there. Many <laughs> water birds, egrets and herons and ducks and geese, not just one. That's awesome. I'm going to check that out next time I'm going through there. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember which, uh, which terminal I was in, but yeah. Margaret, thank you so much for the gift of your time, the gift of your writing, the gift of your columns, and just putting more beauty and delight out there into the world for all of us to enjoy. Thank you for reading with such a generous heart, Courtney, and thank you for having me. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Portisical your soul. Yes, it does.